Father, we do thank you and praise you and cry out and sing holy, Lord. It's great to be able to do so. And what a beautiful picture of the angels and seraphim falling down around your throne and doing the same. And I pray, God, this morning as we encounter you and hear from your word that you would change our hearts, that you would change our lives, that you would impact us not today with just emotion of the moment But you would give us a clearer picture of yourself so that we can see you, behold you, and love you, and walk with you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, church. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. Welcome here. We're so glad you're here to worship with us. If you're just joining online, thank you. Thank you for tuning in and being intentional to make... um, being a part of the family here at Midland Free, part of your life. Um, what we're doing right now is we are doing a little recap or reminder of our uh, mission and vision, our vision to you know be a gospel-centered family and grow one step closer to Jesus every day. And we're really going to focus in on the the E cubed, uh, the in, in, uh, enjoy, embrace, and engage. Those words in our mission to enjoy God, embrace his word, and engage his world. So today is enjoy God. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 63. So if you want to put your fingers there, uh, feel free to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. Uh, We're also going to have the words up on the screen. If you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to follow along at home. You can watch it in our lower thirds. But before I read it, I want to sort of set the scene as close as I can to what was actually happening similarly in David's life. And I read a story this week that helped do that for me. So um, let me just read you that story real quick. There's a famous preacher by the name of F.B. Meyer, who is um, from London, and he was contemporary of D.L. Moody back in the day. And while he was touring in the States for a while, he was on board a train, and a woman recognized him as such. And she began immediately to share her burden with him. For many years, you see, she had cared for a crippled daughter who brought great joy to her life. She made tea for her daughter every morning and then left for work, knowing that in the evening her daughter would be there to greet her when she came home. But the daughter had died, and the greeting mother was left alone and miserable. Home was not home anymore. Someone has said that grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after having eaten with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed at night without saying goodnight. Grief is the helpless feeling, wishing That things were different, but knowing that they are not and never will be again. Meyer gave her great counsel. He said, when you get home and put the key in the door, say aloud, Jesus, I know you are here. Be ready to greet him directly when you go in. As you light the fire, tell him about your day. If someone was kind to you, tell him. If someone was unkind, 
tell him just like you would have told your daughter. At night, stretch out your hand in the darkness and say, Jesus, I know you are here. Psalm 63, a psalm of David in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth they shall be given over to the power of the sword and they shall be a portion for jackals But the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So wait a minute, Pastor Jeremy. I thought you said that this morning the sermon was on enjoy God. (laughs) Not exactly a very upbeat start if you ask me. Indeed I did, and I indeed it is, and what I want to intentionally point out in a very direct and contrastive way is the enormous and stark difference between our understanding of joy and how the Bible pictures it. You see, when we hear the word joy in our culture, in our lives, we can't help but go to the same spot, and that is this, did you have a good time? Did you enjoy yourself? How was the movie? Did you enjoy the show? The meal? The restaurant? The trip? The outing? The game? Whatever. And as soon as we begin to think about joy, our minds immediately go to a self-interest driven sort of pleasure and entertainment. But when the Bible speaks of joy, though, it speaks of it entirely differently. Instead, what the Bible means here when when it talks about enjoying God is to treasure or value or delight in. Like you heard Dan say earlier with the field that the guy sells everything for because it is the highest good, the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy. It is the thing that gives him more life than anything else. Today, I'm calling on us as a church to enjoy God. And I want to make very, very clear that what I mean is not just that we walk into Sunday morning and fake it. I'm not asking you to come in and be like, yay, everything's great. My life is perfect. All happy. Yay, Jesus. (laughs) That's not even close to real. 
There may be a day like that, an hour, a few minutes. (laughs) Thank you for that. But that's not reality. That's not life. It's up and down and twists and turns around and all this other stuff. In the broken and fallen world, we will experience difficulty. Jesus tells us that. So how then can we, with the historic Orthodox Christian creeds, church fathers and founders of our faith say that we want to enjoy God on this miserable journey. (laughs) And yet, that is our chief end and highest calling. Imagine David was asking a similar question in his life, you know, not once, but at least twice he had to flee for his life. Today, as we look at Psalm 63, I I read some of the background on that. And it's funny because you read one commentator and they're like, oh, this is definitely when he fled from Saul. And then you read another commentator and they're like, no, no, this is definitely when he fled from Absalom. (laughs) Well, either way, we don't know because this guy's life had a lot of ups and downs. We think of the king and we think, man, he had it made. But let me tell you, his life was no walk in the park. It was difficult. You know, he's a younger brother who's always getting made fun of and left at home to tend the sheep while everybody else goes and does the important stuff. And eventually, he's anointed by Samuel to be the best king, but nobody wants him to be, including the current king. And as you can imagine, when the administration changes, there's resistance. And here's a big change coming up early in his life where David is being called to be king, but the current king isn't so happy about that. So he wants to kill David. As a result, David is going to have to flee. That's when David fled into the wilderness from Saul. Later in his life, fast forward several tracks to the almost the end. And he's fleeing from his son. His own family wants to kill him. And take his throne and everything that is valuable to him. Definitely not a walk in the park. And it's in that setting, one or the other, in that scene where he's fleeing for his very life to the land of, to the wilderness of Judea, that we find him today in Psalm 63. Uh, I'm almost out of battery. I think my cord is in my office. Anybody want to run back there? All right. Thank you. A good wife who can find. (laughs) Amen. All right. We're going to keep rolling though. But I do have some really cool slides to show you here in just a minute. (laughs) They're amazing. They're just pictures of the wilderness that he fled to. And it shows you how dry and thirsty it is. But the thing I need to uh, really communicate is the, the, the difference And how we think of joy and how the psalmist referred to it. So in just a moment, I'm going to show you those pictures. But let me read to you verse 1, which says this. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you and my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So the first thing I want to point out here is this thing where David says, my God. Now we read that and a lot of times we just go like, 
Okay. But what you don't realize here is that this is the heart of the covenant commitment. If I was going to give you two words today to describe what it means to enjoy God, I would give you these two words. Commit and cling. Commit and cling. Commit and cling. And the first word that we see popping out here in this text is My God, my God, this is no arbitrary thing. This is a covenant commitment. This is a lifetime journey that he's gone on. There's a lot of other gods that David could have pursued. And there's a lot of other things we can pursue. But at the beginning and at the end, there is one and our commitment must be to him. And so David starts at this point and says, my God, my God. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10 says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. At the heart of the, all right, I saw something come. Did we find the cord? All right. Ah, good. At the heart of the covenant is the commitment to God. And what the, what the point here is this, is look, basically when we say we are committed to God and we love him and we want to enjoy him, it means that we need to be committed to him and him alone above everything else. And not just the things in our lives, but the treasures and gifts that he gives. So for example... One preacher has said it like this. If you can make it to heaven and you can be content with the streets of gold, the perfect body, the freedom from sin, the absence of pain, enjoyment and pleasure and everything you ever need and know Jesus, then you are not ready for heaven. But if you can get to heaven and have only Jesus and nothing else, then you're on the right path. The first word I want you to remember for today is that we are to enjoy God. Jesus is the end of our search. He is not a key that unlocks the treasure chest, but instead he himself is the treasure. He is not the means to some other end but he himself is the surpassing value of the entire universe esteem treasure value commit yourself to him like no other when you say my god let it not be an exclamation to draw further emphasis to what you are saying but instead let it be a true commitment that drives you in everything you do to value him above anything else. Number one, verse one, commit, oh God, you are my God. Next it says, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. Hey, perfect timing. <laughs> Let's go back to that slideshow real quick and I can show you um, what we mean by that. Anybody seen my battery? Just kidding. All right. So the Judean wilderness, this is where this happens. David flees there. And you can see why 
thirst would be a real issue there. Now, I've never personally been to the Holy Land. These pictures are ones that I bought from a collection online called the Pictorial Lands of the Bible. You can buy it too. But it gets across the idea that basically this is somewhere that nobody would ever want to go for a holiday on spring break unless perhaps you lived in Michigan and you wanted someplace really, really, really warm. It looks a lot like the Grand Canyon or something like that where water is a big deal. And if you're traveling as a tourist here, your, your guide is going to make sure that every single one of you has a bottle of water. Because if you don't, dehydration is a real issue. You'll notice it set in with first a headache and then a little dizziness and then some nausea and then you're in trouble. And so water in this area is really the source of life. You can see everything else around it and without it is completely, completely dead. Even the water that's there in this large body of water, this is called the Dead Sea, is completely unhelpful. You can see the land is not irrigated by it. That's because the Jordan River flows south and it picks up all this silt and other yuck and deposits it into this uh, stagnant lake. And as a result, the water is salty and not helpful. So if you're going through there, you're going to have to be very intentional about it. And um, if you are someone like David, you're going to, what's going to happen is if you're living in one of these towns, like on the coast, and you want to get away from some bad guys, that's a really good place to go because no one wants to be out there. So grab your camel and your caravan or whatever else you need to hop through that place and start traveling. But watch out because along the narrow way, look, the way is narrow, right? You hear what I'm saying? Along the narrow way, there will be caves. And in those caves, it just might be the case that there are robbers and bad guys hiding out looking to attack a singular Jewish traveler. But don't worry, if they do, a good Samaritan might come along and pour oil on your wounds and uh, along with some wine and bind them up and put you up for the night. But either way, know that if you're traveling through this area, you need to find a passageway and you need to find water and you need to be careful. But if you do, what you find is life. Water in that area makes all the difference in the world and completely changes the entire climate and landscape. And that is why Jesus, when talking about himself to people in this area, says specifically to them, look, in John chapter 4, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, if you truly valued, enjoyed, and delighted in what was most valuable, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And Jesus says to her, whoever drinks of this water in these ravines, man, they'll get thirsty again. But I will give them water, which will make them never thirst. And it will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So David has traveled into this area. He's escaping for his life into the Judean wilderness. And 
what I observe is this. When we are satisfied and when we are doing well, it's difficult to recognize our thirst. But when we are struggling and when we are in trouble, the need for water, our thirst, highlights our need for God. One commentator said it like this, the worst brings out the best. How true is that in my life and in yours? When we're doing well, it's easy traveling, there's no issues. But all of a sudden, we begin to struggle and we're like, oh, we need help. God, where are you? We thirst for you. We need you. We long for you. As a, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, Lord, reveal yourself to us. And the good thing about God is that he does not hide himself from those who seek him, but instead rewards them. And that's why in verse 1, it starts out with a search. That's the first structural part of the psalm. But then verse 2, two through Eight, the next part is the satisfaction. So there is a search, but there's also a satisfaction. And let's look at verse 5, which really pulls this out, where it says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I will feel good again. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And when I remember you upon my bed, when I wake up and I'm worried and I'm tossing and I'm turning and I can't sleep, then I'll give it the only antidote that actually works and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And as we sang earlier, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I'm not going to flesh this image out too much. I can't remember. There might be stuff in the life group questions, but it's a beautiful picture. It's a prairie chicken covering her babies as the fire sweeps over the plain. She is consumed and killed, but after it is gone, they crawl out from under her alive. In the shadow of your wing, we will take refuge. And our soul, verse 8, will cling to you. My soul will cling to you. So the first one, the first thing that we're talking about when we want to enjoy God is we got to commit to him. We got to say, yep, nothing else. You, you're it. All the way, there's a lot of things calling, a lot of things pulling, a lot of things tugging, but you're it. Commit. Number two in verse eight is to cling, to cling to him. Now, this is a pretty cool word, and I know there's a lot of various interest in here. I think through this word, I can hit at a lot of them. Even the interest of my own young children who are a pretty good barometer of whether it's a boring sermon or not. They're often very honest with me afterwards. Um, but here is one that I think everyone will like. Even if you're not an archaeologist or a paleontologist or not interested in dinosaurs. Maybe you like dragons. Maybe you like mythology. Maybe you like cool creatures. One of the oldest texts in the entire Bible, the book of Job, this wisdom literature. When God is talking to Job, uses this idea of clinging and He's trying to draw out of Job as he's already taken everything away. How little Job knows and how important it is for him to cling to him and nothing else. And so the analogy he uses in Job 41 is that of Leviathan. This is not the Sasquatch guy who supposedly runs around in the woods. Commentators uh, 
go back and forth on whether it was a dinosaur or a mythological creature, a dragon, demon, serpent, whatever. But the point is clear. Look at what God says to Job. Hey, can you draw out Leviathan with a fishing hook or press his tongue with a cord? Are you able to do that? Look at how he's described in verse 15. His back is made of a row of shields. Shut up closely with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can even come between them. They are davak, clung to, joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. So too with his skin, verse 23, the folds of his flesh, they stick together, firmly cast on him. And immovable. Here's another image for you. There's a guy by the name of Eliezer. And he's in the time of Israel. When they're struggling with the Philistines. Which is much of their history. But in this time is before a king. And it says this. Eliezer rose. Well it may not be before a king. But here it is. 2 Samuel 23.10. Eliezer rose and struck down the Philistines. Until his hand was weary. And his hand clung to the sword. He had been fighting so hard all day long, gripping the sword so tight that at the end of the day, he couldn't let go. And he's stuck. And his hand is stuck to the sword. And it is so clung to it, it's impossible for him to let go. This, brothers and sisters, is also a picture of what your marriage should look like. You should be clinging to your spouse so tightly that you cannot let go. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast, cling to, like a sword, like Leviathan in his interwoving, interlocking, one flesh shields stuck together, united in defense of the whole. This is how Ruth promised to stick with her mother-in-law. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law left, but Ruth to her. This is a command that Joshua gives the children of Israel when they're to conquer the promised land. He says, be careful to observe the commandments, the law of Moses. The servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in his ways and keep his commandments and cling to him and serve him with all your heart and your soul. And this is what the good king Hezekiah did. Verse 5 of 2 Kings, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. And therefore, there is no one like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor those who were before him. For he, Dabak, clung to, held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord. This is what it means to enjoy God. To commit. And to cling. As a church, as a body, what I'm calling us to, what I hope we'll do is what Christians have been called to for centuries. To enjoy God and glorify him forever. But those are not separate terms. It's not like enjoy, like woohoo-wee. It's no, no, no. To value And treasure and delight in him. And you can do that in any circumstance whatsoever. Someone this morning told me it was a little bit like this. It's like an ice cream cone 
on a hot day. You can be in a miserable situation and still delight in something. And that is the idea of delighting or enjoying God. It's not just frivolous, self-interest-driven entertainment, but is to value something more than anything else. And that's what this text is calling us to. That's what I'm calling us to. That's what I'm hoping our church will be, is one that really delights, values, treasures God and glorifies him like no other. So F.B. Meyer gave some pretty good advice um, to that widow who had lost her daughter, encouraging her to Say aloud, Jesus, I know you're there. And being ready to greet him when she walked in the door. Some months later, Meyer was back in the neighborhood and met the woman again, but he didn't even recognize her. Her face radiated with joy. And instead of announcing misery, it was exuberance. She approached him and said, I did as you told me. And it has made all the difference in the world. And now I can feel him and I know him. And you're right. He is there. I don't know what wilderness the Lord has called you into this morning. I doubt it looks like the Judean thing. But no doubt you've been called to walk through something in your life. And regardless of how narrow that way is. I am encouraging you. To feast on him, the water of life that will satisfy your soul. There is no other way. There is no other value. There is no other joy. There is only one. As we go forward as a church, I'm calling us, I'm hoping, I'm praying that we will truly enjoy God. Not just come in on Sunday morning and be like, hey, but we will value and treasure, delight in and glorify him. That we commit ways to him and cling to him and follow him all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you and praise you for today, Lord. Thank you for